So tonight, I'm going to be talking about waking up. So I'm going to start out with a story. The Buddha once said that his teaching is a single handful. And the story comes from the Samyutta Nikaya. There's a passage that describes the Buddha walking through the forest with a group of his monks. And at one point, the Buddha stopped and bent down, and he picked up a handful of leaves. He then asked the monks, which is greater, the amount of leaves in my hand or all the leaves in this forest? Well, the monks confidently replied, why, of course, all the leaves in the forest. And then the Buddha said, the things I have realized are equal to all the leaves in this forest. But the things that are necessary to teach and practice in order to awaken others is equal to the few leaves in my hand. Some might say that of those few leaves in the Buddha's hand, his teachings on dukkha which is suffering or unsatisfactoriness, which is the translation of the Pali word dukkha, that those teachings are the most critical for awakening. And though this might seem very reasonable to many of you, we could also ask how can recognizing the basic unsatisfactoriness of all experience be the cause of liberation? And I do mean all experience, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. I mean, why wouldn't this realization just lead to more suffering? Primarily in the form of thoughts and feelings of no exit, no release, or no end. Many of us who are familiar with the Four Noble Truths would readily counter that the Buddha didn't just say life is unsatisfactory and life is all suffering, and then leave it at that. He offered us the insight that all human suffering is rooted in greed, hatred, and ignorance. And it is nothing other than the mind itself which gives rise to these three root causes of suffering. Furthermore, the Buddha exhorted us to recognize that each human being has direct access to their own mind. And through the application of the Eightfold Noble Path, all human beings have the potential to liberate their mind from further suffering. End of story. <laughs> Wake up already, guys, okay? Well, of course, we all know liberation just isn't that straightforward. Or isn't it? For me, the value of knowing dukkha as it actually is, is having access to a direct pointing out of our innate ability to know, to cognize the ultimate, unconditioned, unformed, 
transcendent reality, which exists in every instance of relative, form, conditioned reality, even during moments of dukkha. Hence the notion that liberation is available to us in any moment. We just don't recognize it. Well, you know, for those of you who are new and haven't come here before, this is a sangha where we focus on living the Dharma in daily life. So you might be asking yourself, well, what in the world does the ultimate unformed transcendent reality have to do <laughs> with living my daily life? And in fact, some people may actually shun the entire notion of an ultimate reality thinking it has nothing to do with what occurs and how we relate to it. Well, I'm here to convince you otherwise. <laughs> and in fact, there are many schools of Buddhist thought, including the Thai forest tradition, which is a Theravada tradition that many of us who um, have connection to Spirit Rock and Spirit Rock teachers, many of us hold this lineage in our hearts very dearly, this Thai forest lineage. This school and many others teach that awakening to the ultimate reality brings true liberation from suffering, true liberation from dukkha. And throughout the Pali texts, there are numerous instances of the Buddha referring to this ultimate reality as the deathless or nibbana. He uses both terms, the deathless or nibbana. On a retreat, I once sat with Ajahn Sumedhu, who some of you may have sat with. He is uh, an incredible Theravadan teacher who is now actually retired, so I don't even know if he's going to come back again. He was a monk for over 40 years, and he has a booming voice. So, you know, when he comes in the room, he's, he's really quite, and you know this, he has quite a presence. And, um, and when he speaks, he really has quite a presence. I mean, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, if, like in the Ten Commandments, the movie, if God <laughs> was it would sound like Ajahn Sumedha. Anyway, so I was on this retreat, and it was the last day of the retreat, and he pretty much had enough of all of us, you know, it was at that point where he was kind of like, he's just cutting through everything. And with, with some kind of irony in his voice, he, he, he said, some people will say that the Buddha didn't teach the deathless. He only taught there is suffering. And then he sort of moderated his voice and got a little more serious. And he said, but these words, the deathless and nibbana, aren't meant for grasping or believing. They are ways of using these concepts to grasp the apparent here and now timeless reality. And I tell you, it was like the whole room went silent the apparent here and now timeless reality. So, you know, what is this apparent here and now timeless reality? One description that I found comes from the commentary on the Abhidharma, which is a collection of writings of the Buddha. This is the great teachings of the Buddha, and a lot of it is his own cognitive science of mind just laid out in this text. It's quite remarkable. One of the great translations is by Bhikkhu Bodhi, and there's a lot of commentary in this translation. 
at one point, Bhikkhu Bodhi describes Nibbana as, and this is a quotation, a single, undifferentiated, ultimate reality that has one intrinsic nature, which is that of being the unconditioned, deathless element, totally transcendent to the conditioned world. And notice, this definition of Nibbana says nothing of a static state of mind reached at the end of lifetimes of meditation. And though we might think that Nibbana only exists for a Buddha, apparent here and now, timeless reality exists in every moment of your daily life and my daily life. Every moment. It's right there. And yet most people know nothing of its existence. And those of us who hear about it are often left wondering how to get it. If it's there, how do I get it? How do I experience this apparent, timeless, here and now reality? And I wonder, how can it be that something so ubiquitous remains for the vast majority of human beings unknown and unrealized? So much so that most would doubt its very existence. Well, I suppose there are many answers to that question. Um, I'm only going to offer a particular answer tonight, which may not be the best one, but I think it's sort of an understandable one. For me, the key to answering this question lies in human perception itself. So every moment, our mind seamlessly concocts a dualistic view of experience. It creates these definitive perceptual <clears throat> boundaries between inner and outer, self and other. And it does this in such an incredible way that inner I, this ego, this thing that you know, feels like me, it feels so solid, doesn't it? It feels so real. It's self-existing, it doesn't need anything else, and it feels just wholly distinct from anything that might be out there. <coughs> Our brain is wired to generate me and mine with the precision of a fine-tuned machine. We don't even know it's doing it. And it's our own mental automaticity, this unquestioned continuance of what the Buddha called wrong view that obscures perception of wise view. And what is that wise view? Wise view is that this I is actually co-arising and totally undifferentiated from any other simultaneously existing internal or external phenomena. There is no separation. And in the Buddhist text, this is what is termed the wise view of anatta, not-self, and shunyata, emptiness. It's both of these. I wanted to read you, this is a terrific book that Kirk gave me. It's written by a Tibetan tempo. This is a high teacher of the Tibetan Buddhist knowledge. And he starts out with all the basic practices and goes all the way through sort of describing why you would do them and what you'll get out of them. And it, it's very straightforward. And I just wanted to read you one paragraph out of this, 
because he's just so clear in what he says. We all act as if we had lasting, separate, independent selves. That is our constant preoccupation to protect and foster. Sort of interesting way to look at it, yeah? Our, our constant, continual preoccupation with self. We protect it, we foster that whole idea. It is an unthinking habit that most of us would normally be unlikely to question or explain. However, all of our suffering is associated with this preoccupation. All loss and gain, pleasure and pain, arise because we identify so closely with this vague feeling of selfness that we have all the time. We're so emotionally involved with and attached to this self that we take it for granted. We don't even question it. When I started out by saying, for me, the value of knowing dukkha as it is, is that doorway to experiencing the deathless. What I'm saying is that all we can do is allow ourselves to awaken to this automatic processing machine that is continually directing us to this preoccupation to foster and care for this false notion that I am separate from anything else that might be arising in this particular moment. Anatta, not self. So in, in my own simple way, I look to my teachers when I get to big concepts and I want to be able to cut through conceptualization about things that I may not be directly experiencing in a way that really grounds it for me in the here and the now, timeless reality. I look to my teachers. In this case, I look to Ajahn Buddhadasa, one of the most revered Thai Buddhist teachers, who reminds us of a simple yet very profound way to cut through wrong view and directly experience anatta and sunyata, not self and emptiness. Sabe dhamma nalam abhini vesaya. And that translates as nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. We each have a self. We each exist. There is no doubt about it. Yet, we are not ultimately that self. Nor are we ultimately that existence. Our true nature is not the narrow narrative the ego spins about self. Nor is our human existence as isolated and limited as we think. Nothing should be clung to as I or mine. We are much more than I or mine in our essence. So Ajahn Buddhadasa continues, 
He says, a mind that is free of clinging to I and mine is void and serene and full of mindfulness and wisdom. I love that. The mind is void and it's full. Void and serene and full of mindfulness and wisdom. Let yourself be in that space where your conceptualizations about void and full can fall away. A mind that is void and serene and full of mindfulness and wisdom is a mind experiencing the deathless, apparent here and now timeless reality. It's as simple as that. So to directly experience apparent here and now timeless reality, which is why you're all here, Ajahn Sumedho, we go back to our booming Ajahn Sumedho, he instructed us on that retreat to pay attention. But what he said was, heedfulness, paying attention, fully present here and now, is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Heedfulness, paying attention, fully present here and now, is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. And then he used the Buddha's words. Mindfulness, heedfulness, is not dying. Heedlessness is dying all the time. I remember gasping. Mindfulness, heedfulness is not dying. Heedlessness is dying all the time. And ask yourself, why would this be? Heedlessness is dying all the time? Oh, right, I missed that moment. Oh, well, there it goes. It's gone. <laughs> Where was I? You just died. You know, you just lost the moment. You weren't there. You weren't alive in your experience. You weren't there for it. Gone. Dying all the time. Let yourself drop into your heart and mind right now. Yeah? Just let yourself open up a little bit. Soften in. See if you can feel into mindfulness, heedfulness is not dying. Heedlessness is dying all the time. And see if you can feel into it rather than deduce whether it's true or false. Because I assure you, if you try to decide if it's true, you have to start thinking from the me and mine position, and that obscures the deathless, apparent, here and now, timeless reality. Okay? So this is dropping your concepts and just letting yourself live. Why is it timely? Because if you're always here, there's no time. It's just a stream. There's no beginning and end. And remember, your body is the doorway to the timeless, not your concept. So let your five senses and the sense base of mind be your doorway. 
to the apparent here and now timeless reality. I could tell you that at that time, paying attention sure sounded like a lot of work to me. Always heedful, always mindful, always attentive. I remember asking myself, what human mind could possibly do this 24-7? It just seemed inconceivable. So much effort. Well, since that time, I've had a lot more help from my teachers. And again, Ajahn Buddhadasa came to my rescue with a beautiful instruction on how to approach heedfulness without all that effort. And remember, this is one of the most revered Thai Buddhist masters, okay? He says, the Chinese Zen masters said that there is no need to do anything. Just be still. And the mind will become void by itself. Just let yourself rest in the stillness, which is always existing in the movement of the phenomena coming and going. And do nothing. The mind is void all by itself. It doesn't need you to make it void. And then, of course, he continues. You can't just leave it at that. He has to say more. Being still means not admitting sense objects into the mind. Be content to let them founder like waves on the shore. How do we not let sense objects into the mind? I mean, they exist. <laughs> they intrude upon our senses continually, right? So what does he mean? Being still means not admitting sense objects into the mind. Do you think, talking about jhana practice, shut it all down, don't experience anything, just have that thalamic activity, and every other sense is gone, and nothing is there except you know, that ocean of brainstem activity? Primordial <laughs> awareness, is that what he means? I don't think so. <laughs> I really don't. I think what he means is admitting sense objects into the mind means to conceptualize about them. When we experience mere objects, objects as they are, without preference or opinion, we can let them be as they are. Imagine yourself. You're out at the beach. It's a beautiful day. You're out there at the beach. And there's waves. And they're big waves. Now imagine that you're standing there and you hate big waves. You're afraid of big waves. You can't stand big waves. And it's a beautiful day and there are these big waves and your mind is lost in conceptualizing about how much you hate big waves. What are you actually experiencing at that point? Are you experiencing waves? No, you're experiencing your thoughts, beliefs, and opinions about waves. That's it. You're not an apparent timeless here and now. <laughs> you're lost in this small, stupid mind of yours that thinks it's so important 
This I standing there, I hate waves that are big. <laughs> it's ridiculous. No, what could be happening is you could be resting in the experience of big waves and the body's response to big waves. Oh, waves. They're big. My body's having some response to it. I'm feeling a little fearful. Let me see what that's like. Fear feels like this. Oh, wow. And the sound of the wave, wow, they're crashing. And pretty soon what's happening is fear is gone, mind's interested, body's curious, fear's gone, <laughs> and all is just you and waves. That's it. Conceptualization are gone, it, merely big waves. That's it. You and phenomena. And there's no separation because at that point you're so ex you're so fully in the experience of big waves that there's no separation between you and big waves. And basically the ego's now lost the battle. Your <laughs> important thoughts about how they were so frightening and this and that, I mean, they amount to a hill of beans, they're gone. And meanwhile, your whole body, is, you're just resonating in the experience of big waves. You're on the beach, there's no waves. You've got a surfboard. You're like all set to surf and there's nothing. My patients who are surfers, if they were here, they'd be laughing at me because they love it actually when there's no waves because they get to paddle out and then they just get to be out there. Just being in the being of maybe a wave's going to come by at some point. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm not at my job. <laughs> I'm not doing whatever I have to do. I'm just here, surfboard. Yeah. No conceptualization about, oh my gosh, no big waves, I'm not going to get the big thing, and I'm not going to have the big high, and blah, blah, blah. No, they're just, they're, it's just them, water, dolphins going by, whales going by. Timeless, apparent, here and now reality. When we allow ourselves to open and rest in experience, no matter what it is, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, knowing it as it is, yeah? We're not admitting sense objects into the mind that conceptualizes about them and makes all this big deal about them. All the opinions, all the wants, all the needs, all the thoughts, all the this. Yeah. Just phenomena. Mere objects as they are, and we're letting them be as they are. And guess what? When we let experience be as it is, we get to let ourselves be as we are. And then stillness arises, and then the void, the mind, is void. And we don't have to do anything. See right now, we'll do a little experiment. We'll just see. Try allowing your alertness to happen with that just openness and receptivity, okay? Be like an antenna. Think of yourself as a radio antenna and open all your senses, including the sense base of your mind. You needn't do anything. Let experience come to you. Just let it come. And you'll notice your mind coming up with opinions and beliefs and thoughts and you'll notice it because it's a habit so it'll be there 
Think of them as mere thoughts, mere opinions. They are phenomena as well. Let them be as they are, and let yourself be as you are. See if you can just observe without effort, without resistance. Total openness. Don't meditate. This is the non-meditation of meditation. Just let yourself, let be, you and everything else. Let it happen. Open your eyes. Open everything up. Everything's included. Nothing's left out. Nothing's a problem. Even your thoughts about how it's a problem. It's not a problem. Even your thoughts about how I can't do this. Oh, this is so stupid. Eh, no problem. I'm hoping some of you were here when Anam Tipton was here a couple of, I guess, last month. Um, he says, and I heard these words come out of his mouth, gaze into the true nature of external phenomena, and then the separation between it and you will dissolve on its own. Let all your senses gaze into the true nature of external phenomena, just as it is. The separation between it and you will dissolve on its own. You need do nothing. Just the intention. Oh, phenomena. Here. This being. Experiencing phenomena. Recognize. Let be and do nothing else. In fact, no matter what arises, whether we like it or we don't like it, whether we want it or we don't want it. We can always choose to rest in the suchness of apparent here and now timeless reality with a deep trust in the deathless. It's there. You're it. Whether you recognize it or not. Imagine a life lived from this place of resting into each moment and it's arising, existing, and passing away. Imagine that. Total openness, resting. Mind completely curious. Phenomena right there. You right there. Everything included. Nothing left out. Even the bad stuff. Ajahn Buddhadasa imagines life like that, this way. He says, if there's nothing to be clung to, what possible purpose can there be in busying and confusing ourselves in rushing about things and disturbing them, rather than just being still? And I promise you, he doesn't mean don't engage in activity. He means be still while active. Be still while inactive. Be the stillness that inherently exists in each moment and of which you are intrinsically comprised. It's already there. You're already it. Recognize and let be. One of the really wonderful uh, Dzogchen masters 
Shokinima Rinpoche describes this practice of resting in the deathless in this way. It's another language for it, but there's something very um, rich about this language. Maybe for some of you it'll kick in if I say this. Maybe for some of you it won't mean anything. But I thought, okay, here's another way to say it. Train in being unpolluted by conceptual attitude. Utterly empty, wide open, sheer bliss, total nakedness, vividly awake, alive, vibrant, spacious. So I'll say that again. Train in being unpolluted by conceptual attitude, utterly empty which is the same as utterly void. Two different terms, same thing. Wide open, sheer bliss, total nakedness, vividly awake, alive, vibrant, spacious. I contend that the Buddhist teachings on emptiness and the deathless are in fact the most profound leaves in that hand of his. And even though for many of us, really allowing the experience to happen, to be there in a way that is so clear and so apparent in the moment, even though that is something that comes and goes, I don't know, maybe some of you have it all the time. <laughs> I know for me, <laughs> there it is, there it isn't. <laughs> Even so, this is the gateway to waking up. This is the door to deathlessness, and it's always there for each of us. So that is my gift to each of you this evening. And um, I made sure to leave time for questions because, of course, it's so rich and common, whatever anybody wants to share. Uh, you repeat one more time. Can yes. you repeat twice the last thing about um, no. your openness? The last thing, yes. I was going to say, I've repeated a lot of things <laughs> twice. You must all be like, what's wrong with this woman? Can't she get it Who's the first the time? Who's the person that said that? You so um, he's a Dzogchen teacher, and his name is. Choki, C-H-O-K-Y-I, Nima, N-I-M-A, Rinpoche. Train in being unpolluted by conceptual attitude. So that unpolluted means train in not getting lost in that automatic, ignorant, wrong view that the mind just whips up for you all on its own, all the time, 24-7. That's the polluted concept that we bring to just phenomena. Utterly empty. This is that voidness that Ajahn Buddhadasa was referring to. Utterly empty. Empty of concepts. Things are as they are. You are as you are. Let be. Wide open. Hopefully some of you know what wide open feels like. Nothing left out, everything included, 
no accepting, no rejecting. It's, you know, what are you going to reject? It's there. My Adderall is here. Am I going to reject it? No. Am I going to love it so that someday when it breaks, I'm going to be dead? No. Not accepting, not rejecting. Everything's included. Sheer bliss. Letting be is sheer bliss. Total nakedness. Vividly awake. Alive. Vibrant. Spacious. Other questions? Yes? The phrase apparent here and now, the other timeless, timeless reality. reality. Yes. I'm curious about the apparent part because it sounds almost cynical. Exactly. Like, apparent, right? I know. Why is it called apparent? You know, that is so Ajahn Sumedho. And it's so <laughs> the Buddha. It's so the Buddha. You know? Apparent because the here and now. I hate to tell you this. You can never be in the now, really. Your brain is 0.5 milliseconds slow. Okay? It's already happened. Whatever you think is going on already happened. It happened in your unconscious. And when it finally processes and gets to your conceptual mind, where you can experience it, you only have the choice to abort what already happened. <laughs> I'm serious. This is neurobiology. We know this to be true. Okay? Apparent meaning, apparent here and now, timeless reality. The timeless aspect is the here and now happened. It will happen. It will never not happen. It's timeless. The apparent is, did I get it right? <laughs> There's always the chance. So apparent really means it appears to be that. It appears to be to here and now. Like it's here for everyone to see. It exactly, and it appears to be whatever it, is, it appears to be to you. How the hell do you know it's appearing to you the way it's appearing to everyone else? Even an enlightened mind, I think, it still has some filtering. Yeah. So it's apparently here and now. But the timeless aspect is, it's always here and now. I was totally thrown off by that. And it's an Great question. Because apparent to me means it's apparent for everyone to see. It's there. That too. But it's not. Are we all seeing it the same way, though? Right. So the apparent And who's missing it? The, the, the heedless who are dying. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sometimes I think the Buddha was Jewish. I swear. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. He sounds like my grandmother. <laughs> can I just repeat what you've said so far? And then you can continue? So um, she was just saying that Philip uses other specific kinds of terms like non-judging, non-comparing, non-fixing. Non Letting be, this is, these are other words for letting be, yeah? And she was saying that when she has that recognition of non-fixing, non-comparing, there's a stillness that arises. Apparent, timeless, here and now reality is not dissociation, nor is it avoidance. It is not. And in every moment where we're experiencing injustice, in every moment where we're experiencing tightness, in every moment where we're experiencing 
not being able to care for ourselves in the way we wish, whether it's financially, you know, and what, whatever is coming up that is causing us distress, I assure you that stressful moment is also timeless, apparent here and now reality. It is there. Whether the mind is willing to ungrip itself in that moment and rest in the feeling of how am I going to afford my rent this month is up to the individual mind itself. It doesn't mean it can't be done. We can rest in the fear that arises around how am I going to pay my rent. Or we can get gripped and tight and worried and anxious about how am I going to pay my rent this month. It's how you meet the things that arise. And you always have that choice. But no matter how you meet, I assure you, in that moment is also unconditioned, unformed, transcendent, along with being formed, <laughs> upsetting, <laughs> and really not very transparent or transcendent at all. Your mind will bring to getting out paper whatever it brings. As long as you recognize that your mind is bringing getting out damn paper to getting out paper, you wake up. It doesn't mean you always have to be a perfected being. That's the point. You get to have that damn about the paper as long as you're awake and you're recognizing that that is just something you're bringing to bringing out paper. The positive feeling of getting out paper is just as much an opinion and an invitation for suffering as the distressful feeling of getting out paper. They're equal. They are equal opinions and beliefs. One brings us a good feeling, which eventually will go away, and we might not feel so good afterwards. The other one brings us a distressful feeling, which eventually goes away, and we might feel better afterwards. Equal. That's the teaching, in a nutshell. So let yourself sit with that. Um, thank you so much for going through this process, because what you ended up doing for everyone in the room was actually bringing up something that I think people had so much difficulty recognizing, that even the joyful affect, the joyful experience, is just equal. It's not the phenomena itself. So thank you so much for doing that. That was just great. Thank you. You have a question, you have a question, and then we have to stop. Did everybody hear this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a perennial question. And the most compassionate answer that I can give you is the following. In human life, there are things we have the power to change. There are things we have some power to change. There are things we don't have any power to change. Wisdom is the discernment to recognize where you can make change happen. And compassion is the impulse 
to use the energy to make that change happen. And in every moment where we're discerning what is wise and what is not, timeless, apparent, here and now reality is right there. And so it is imperative for those of us who are in these professions where we work with people who suffer, and especially people who work with those who are going to suffer greatly because of grief and separation and ignorance based on the actions of others. This is where the practice of compassion, recognizing two things. We all have human minds that suffer. These things happen because these minds are suffering. Unwise acts occur because minds are suffering. If there's anything you can do to awaken those minds, do it. You don't have to do it from the position of hatred or anger. You can do it from the position of compassion, loving kindness, strength, and a very deep will to see that you can do everything you can do, but you don't need to do it with hatred or anger. That, in the end, will destroy you and anything you might be doing. And that can be your refuge. Well, the thing is, again, this is discerning wisdom. It's a process, at least for me. It's a process. Maybe for some of you, you know right off the bat what's actually right and true in immediately. I, it's not like that for me. For me, it's always a process. I invite you to embrace that process, recognizing that mistakes occur, wrong judgments occur, and lots of wonderfully great things occur, too. This is life, yeah? We're not perfect beings until we're perfected beings. And then I don't even know if we're perfected beings, actually. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah? You do the best you can, as best you can. This is what I tell the people I work with, as best you can. And that's all we can do. Thank you. And such beautiful questions. Thank you so much. Let's do our metta.